On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the holiest day of the year, the old high priest in Jerusalem would make his way to the temple. He would put on the sacred vestments, and after purifications and ablutions, he would go where only he could go. And only on this day of the year could he go there, into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. He would light the candles and the incense, and then he would offer prayers for his own sins and the sins of the people, year after year after year. My first experience of failure in ministry came quickly, very quickly, about 30 minutes after I started my ministry. Here I was, the brand new graduate of a seminary, on the very first morning of the very first day in my very first church. In fact, I was unpacking my boxes of books, putting my seminary textbooks and biblical commentaries on the shelf, when a middle-aged woman, a member and leader of my congregation, put her head in my open office door and said, we're very glad that you've come to be our new pastor. Thank you, I said, I am too. She paused half a beat and then said, have you got a minute? Sure, I said. I moved a stack of papers and files out of a chair. She sat down. There was chit-chat for a minute, but she obviously had something on her mind, and soon enough she got around to it. I know I shouldn't feel this way, she said. In fact, it's probably not Christian to feel this way. But I simply cannot bring myself to the place that I can believe that God could ever forgive me for what I have done. That startled me, and I handled it like the novice that I was. What, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> what she was talking about was a deep sense of stain and burden, inadequacy and guilt that she felt in the presence of God. She knew who she was. She knew how she had lived, and she could not bring herself to believe that she was forgiven by God for what she had done. What have you done? I said. But see, that was the thing. She, she couldn't name anything explicitly. In many ways, she was a very conventional woman. She had committed no act of violence. She had embezzled no money. She had been faithful to her marriage vow. She had raised two wonderful children. There were no scandals to come tumbling out, no secret sins to be revealed just a heaviness and a burden before God. I had had about this much pastoral counseling training in seminary, and I decided that it was the time to use it. <laughs> it didn't work. So I turned to encouragement. You, you, you shouldn't feel this way. Think about the good things you've done in life. Think about your family, the children that you've raised. That didn't work either. So I began in panic to resort, now only 30 minutes into my ministry, to a tactic I had vowed in seminary never, ever to use. I began to dispense religious bromides and theological sound bites. I looked at her and said, God loves you. I know that, she said. Jesus forgives you all of your sins. I know that too, she said. Now her shoulders slumping, she was staring at the floor. I was making it worse, not better. 
And so in desperation, I said, I think this is probably the kind of thing that we ought to give to God in prayer. And so we prayed, both of us knowing that the prayer was more for me than it was for her. And when it was over, she trudged out of my office more burdened than when she came in. Years later, when she and I were remembering this first pastoral conversation, I asked her if I could share it because I soon learned in my young ministry that she was not alone. That there are many of us who experience our faith not as joy but as burden. That there are many of us who stand before God and others and life with a deep sense of brokenness and inadequacy that cannot be healed. William Neal at Yale University wrote a little book for ministers, and in the book he said, if you are standing in the pulpit of an American church on Sunday morning, be assured that you are looking out at a congregation of people, some of whom almost did not come today. And of those who did come, many of them secretly fear that everyone else in the room is more confidently Christian than they are. And the old high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And after lighting the candles and the incense, he would offer prayers for his own sins and the sins of the people. Year after year after year. Now, a lot of people who feel as this woman did wouldn't use the same language that she does. She they wouldn't talk about it in terms of sin and forgiveness. In fact, one of the most common ways to talk about this experience is in the sense that life has constantly put us on trial. Sociologist Richard Finn says it is one of the characteristics of contemporary life to put people on trial all the time. There are accusers out there, official and unofficial, external and internal, always trying to expose our weaknesses, to reveal our flaws, to make manifest the places where we don't measure up. As a matter of fact, it's no accident that one of the oldest terms in the history of religion for the evil one is Satan, the accuser. How'd you do on your SATs? Are you going to be able to get into your first choice or are you going to have to fall back to your safety school? How were your grades last term? Did you make Dean's List this time? How was your sales quota last quarter? What size church are you pastoring? Is it growing? Are you making budget this year? How'd the tenure review go? What are you writing these days? How are you at relationships? You've had a few failures there, uh, haven't you? What about a parent? Are you a good parent? You aren't emotionally scarring those children, are you? Aren't you a little old to be doing what you're doing? Don't you think you ought to let younger people with more energy and creativity take it over? The accuser is always around. You probably know the study that was done a number of years ago of very successful people, people who are admired in professions and other positions. They were asking about their fears, and the number one fear of successful people is not the fear of public speaking or not the fear of heights. It's the fear we're going to be found out, that we're going to be revealed for the bluffs and frauds that we are, that we don't have our act together. 
and the old high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And after lighting the candles and the incense, he would offer prayers for his own sins and the sins of the people year after year after year. Now, we don't know, of course, what the old priest said in the Holy of Holies. He was there all alone. We don't know what he said. But there is maybe a clue to what he said in that wonderful passage in Annie Dillard's book, Holy the Firm. She talks about being in a cabin in the Pacific Northwest, and every Sunday she would make her way down to the little church in the fir tree. She said there was, uh, on a good Sunday, there'd be maybe 20 of us there. The service was led by a Congregationalist minister in his shirt sleeves, and every week he would read the prayers out of the book, every week the same prayer out of the book. One Sunday he was reading the prayer out of the book. He had prayed for the leaders of the nation and for the poor and for peace, and he abruptly stopped in the middle of the prayer, looked up, and blurted out, God, we bring you these same prayers every week. Then startled by what he had done, he went back to reading the prayers. Annie Dillard said, because of this, I like him very much. I wonder if one year, the old high priest, having trudged to the temple year after year, stopped in mid-prayer and said, God, I bring you these same prayers every year. What do you want from us? What do you want from us? Do you want a cereal offering? Do you want the firstborn of the flock? We're human strugglers doing the best we can. What do you want? And the voice of God would have said, I want what I have always wanted. I want humanity fully alive. I want human life well lived. And the old high priest would have trudged back to his home like the woman left my office, more burdened than he came in because that is the one thing we cannot give. We know who we are. We are human strugglers, broken and flawed. We are not humanity fully alive. We are not human life well lived. And that is why the preacher of the book of Hebrews takes us in our religious imaginations where we otherwise could not go into the holy of holies. Not in the one made with hands, but in the one in the heavens. Not to see the old high priest, but to see the great high priest who is our brother Jesus, who was put on trial in every way that we are, who was accused in every way as we, who walked the same path as we, who learned obedience through suffering. And we see him going into the Holy of Holies with our names on his lips. I am here on behalf of them all. I am not ashamed to call them my brothers and my sisters. I stand here making an offering once for all. Humanity fully alive. A human life well lived. And all of the accusers fled. Everyone. And the ear of God heard from the mouth of the Son 
what every parent of lost children yearns to hear. I'm home, and I have the children with me. About a year ago, I had a little scrape with the law. What happened was I was pulling out of a service station parking lot. I had to go across four lanes of a busy, traffic-filled road and get in the left-hand lane so that I could turn left onto Interstate 85. I thought I had it measured, and I scooted out when I had my chance. But the light changed to red just as I pulled out. The traffic stopped in the left-hand lane, and I found myself with the nose of my car in one lane and the rear of my car in the other. I waited for the light to change, but I looked in the rearview mirror, and there was a policeman behind me with the light on. He pulled me over, and he came over to the car and said, Do you know what you did wrong? No, I lied. <laughs> he said, You were impeding the flow of traffic. When you're young, you get a ticket for speeding in a convertible. When you're my age, you get a ticket for being in the way. He wrote out a ticket, and I said to him, exactly what law have I violated? He pushed the ticket through the window, 56-384-16. You can look it up in any library. So I did. I'm a professor. I did a text-critical analysis of it. And I came to the conclusion that, technically speaking, I had not impeded the flow of traffic. I went to the law school and looked it up on LexisNexis. I got case law, precedent, history. By the time I was done, I had a folder over an inch thick that proved that I did not impede the flow of traffic. My wife said, Tom, you're an idiot. <laughs> Just pay it and get done. No, I want my day in court. And it finally came. The judge entered, we all stood, then we sat. The clerk said, would Thomas Long please approach the bench? I came forward and the judge leaned over and said, the police officer who arrested you is no longer employed by DeKalb County. There is no one here to bear witness against you. You're free to go. Something in me wanted to say, you can't just throw my case out like this. I've got a file folder that says I'm innocent. In other words, there's something in me that would rather be right than free. I think one day we will all stand before God's justice. And I think we will hear the voice of God say, you can put down your file folders. All of your silly attempts at self-justification have never healed you. And by the way, your brother, the great high priest, has already been here on your behalf. And look, all of the accusers have fled. There's no one, absolutely no one here, to bear witness against you. Welcome home. Welcome home.